Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Hugo Spowers and I set up River Simple which is uh, a sustainable car company. The Driven Chat Podcast, powered by Paramex Digital. Well, hello and welcome to this week's Driven Chat Podcast, which is going to be a sequence of firsts, which I'm very excited about. Firstly, let me just talk you through who's in the room. Sat to my left is... It's Miles Lacey. Hey, hey. Miles and I are currently sat in a room with Hugo, you've just heard from there in the introduction, and we are sat in a very exciting building in a beautiful part of the world. We are in, forgive my pronunciation if I get this wrong, Clandidroid Wells. Is that good enough? Indeed. Oh, Great. Good, good. Come on, how long have you practised that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other thing I want to point out as well is the fact that today I've ridden to the location we're, we're recording at on a petrol-powered motorcycle. Miles, you have driven here in a diesel-powered motor vehicle. I have. Um, but we're both, whilst here, going to drive a car. I don't know about you, Miles, but this is going to be a first one for me. Driving a car powered exclusively by hydrogen. Definitely a first for me as well. So we're both, <laughs> I, I would say, e eagerly awaiting to see what that experience is like. Yeah, absolutely. So we're here at River Simple, as Hugo perfectly introduced a car company producing vehicles powered by hydrogen and I'm excited for this episode for multiple reasons firstly because we are going to have a drive of the car and the format of how we're going to do this from a podcast point of view is we're going to have a bit of a chat then we're going to go for a drive and then we're going to come back and pick up and 
probably come up with more questions than I'm going to want to know the answer to. But secondly, aside from getting the opportunity to drive a hydrogen car for the first time, I'm excited because I feel like today I'm going to learn things. And I like learning things. And I feel like our dear listener will also learn things. So before we get started, Hugo, one of the things I love to ask people is to try and establish how people have got to where they are here. And sometimes that's through a core memory, perhaps as a child or as you know, a young adult. Is there something that happened in your life as far back as you can remember that might have been that little light bulb moment that has ultimately led you to the point of where you are now? Yes, I think I can trace it back, actually. Uh, I was really interested in the environment when I was young. I knew what an ecosystem was when I was 10 years old. In those days, most adults didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, Unfortunately, I then, well, not unfortunately necessarily, but I caught the motor racing disease when I was about 15, Uh and that rather took precedence, and that's why I went off to university to do engineering, because I wanted to design and drive racing cars, uh, which I proceeded to do for some years. But I'd never lost my interest in the environment, and I used to defend my um, professional life over dinner with friends on the basis that I, I think motor racing is the quickest and cheapest way to improve the efficiency of combustion engines. And I still believe that's true. But I reached the conclusion that we needed to get rid of combustion engines altogether. And so prolonging their tenure didn't really stack up any longer as a justification. And I got out not knowing, got out of motorsport altogether, not knowing what I was going to do, except I knew it was going to be nothing to do with cars. And the reason for that, it didn't work out, as you know, but uh, the reason for that is that um, I felt the only future for sustainable transport was better batteries. And that's the realm of basic science, big corporations, big budgets, not my sort of world at all. Mm -hmm. And it was only subsequently that I found out about hydrogen fuel cells. I realised the technology existed but it was so different to combustion engine, you really needed to build a different sort of car. And that systems integration is what motorsport's all about. It really played to my skills, and that's how I started to take an interest in this field. Fantastic. And I think you're absolutely spot on with your, your analogy there, with the what happens in the motorsport environment does make its way down. You know, we think even to the one that everyone knows, of course, Formula One, you look at the technology that goes into the engines there. And of course, it's F1 technology that's ultimately always trickled its way down into road cars and hybrid systems. Now, of course, you know, we've got production cars rolling out of factories with near a thousand horsepower with a little V6 engine and an electric motor boosting it, which of course has been derived from Formula One. But no combustion engine talk in this conversation, because we are, (laughs) of course, going to be talking about hydrogen, which, as I alluded to before, I'm excited about because I'll be honest, I don't really know a massive amount of how it works. We're at this fascinating time, this transition time from exclusively driving internal combustion engine cars, petrol or diesel powered. We've then saw the introduction of hybrid cars and some early battery EVs. But we're now all being encouraged as the general public, certainly here in the UK, and I know it's happening elsewhere in the world as well. We're being pushed towards this new chapter where internal combustion engines are no longer going to be on sale in the UK. We will have to drive something, at least for the short term, that's going to be plug-in hybrid, uh, but then eventually something that's not going to have an internal combustion engine at all. And of course, when this conversation first started, I'm thinking back to 10 years ago or so, 
we were hearing all sorts of different exciting ideas and some people saying, you know, oh, the EV thing's going to be a, it's going to be the Betamax of, of car technology. It's going to come and go and it's going to disappear. Then others said, no, 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 in terms of combustion is so efficient now and, and so environmentally friendly in comparison to what it was 20 years ago. It's not going anywhere. And then this other exciting option suddenly popped up, which was hydrogen. It's something that still uses a fuel, something we can go to a fuel station, plug in a pump, fill up the tank and use that as a propulsion system. And that all sounded really exciting. The motoring press went wild for it. We all got really excited because that seemed far easier to relate to in comparison to petrol and diesel than plug in your car at your house or hope that you'd be able to plug it in at a service station somewhere which we all know, certainly I do as a motoring journalist, it doesn't really work that well yet. So hydrogen was really exciting. It seemed to be the way it was all going to go. And then it all seemed to go a little bit quiet on the hydrogen front. What's that journey been like in the sense of initial excitement for hydrogen? Looked like it was happening. There was a hydrogen filling station at Beaconsfield Services and a couple of other petrol <laughs> stations in the UK. And then suddenly they went away. Mm. So where are we at now? Well, I've been doing this for quite a long time. I first found out about fuel cells in 97. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I started looking at it seriously in 99 when I was doing an MBA at uh, Cranfield. And, and I was really looking a long way ahead. I, I, uh, it was clear to me that hydrogen had a terribly important role to play. And I don't think the physics has changed since, so my opinion hasn't changed either. Um, and uh, I, uh, when I say looking a long way ahead, I recognise all the interim um, uh, solutions that can reduce environmental impact and maybe are easier for existing companies to adopt here and now. Um, but... Being less unsustainable is still not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to look at long-term solutions rather than interim solutions. There's no point in ploughing money and resources and especially setting up a new company to pursue something that's an interim measure mm -hmm. and that you're going to have to write off. And so uh, whilst acknowledging the value and the contribution that hybrids have made and more efficient combustion engines, I didn't want to get involved in that. And um, uh, the, there have been ups and downs along the way. Um, hydrogen was really not talked about much at all when I first got involved, but, but uh, you're absolutely right. There have been some big pronouncements for mm. 20 years now about uh, um, uh, the, the rosy future that hydrogen can deliver. And, uh, and I think it's easy to explain, really, what's been going on over that 20-year period. Um, I have to say the one thing I'm critical of the auto industry about is, and I understand why it happens too, um, the, the industry has not, in Europe and America, been investing in the long term. Mm -hmm. It's been investing in short-term solutions that are going to impact the bottom line in the near term. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the Koreans and Japanese are an exception, but by and large, the quarterly return has, has dominated. Yeah. And I think arguably they spent more money on lobbying against regulations than they have in inv investing in the future. Surely. Now that the regulations have come in uh, on tailpipe mandates, they have to make zero emission cars. Yeah. 
And battery cars are not new. They're the only thing in the, in, in the larder, really, if you like, yeah. because they haven't developed the hydrogen technology, which is new. And so they're churning out battery electric cars in, under the super credit scheme. A battery car counts as three cars in working out your fleet average. Mm-hmm. And so it is worth doing that even at a loss because it reduces your fines by more than the loss. It's 95 euros per gram per car over the fleet average, uh, which is uh, ostensibly 95 grams per kilometre. So if you make a million cars and your fleet average is 105 grams, you pay a 950 million euro fine. And that is a fairly swinging number. (laughs) These are staggering numbers, aren't they? But... uh, we have to sell those cars. If you want to, if you want to um, uh, reduce your fines, you do have to secure a sale. And so the PR has to be, understandably, that battery cars are the future. Mm. Um, because you can't say, well, uh, this is just a stopgap measure. We're going to sell you something else in five years' time. Yeah. And this is the situation we're in, although the industry has known for a long time that they cannot meet the net zero targets just with battery cars mm-hmm. and a whole raft of issues that we'll, we'll come on to. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a role for battery cars. There's a very important role, and they're great at some applications. Mm-hmm. We've lived with petrol and diesel alongside, um, and they, they have different virtues. Now, batteries and hydrogen are considerably more different, and it is very much clearer that there are different roles for the two. We don't, after all, argue about solar PV or wind turbines, mm. which one's going to win the renewable energy race. They're different, and we need them both. And we really shouldn't be... And the same applies to, to batteries and, and hydrogen. And we really shouldn't be having this war of words uh, about hydrogen or batteries. There is no single silver bullet. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the battery electric car um, has been around for as long as the petrol car. Yeah. The land speed record was broken by a battery car in 1899, the first car to do 100 kilometres an hour. Uh, whereas fuel cells have really only been used in mobility... Um, until recently by NASA for the command capsule in space. Mm -hmm. Now, they needed sort of maybe one kilowatt to run the instruments in the command capsule, which is not a lot of power. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't really give a monkeys what the price was. So (laughs) there's a a lot of work you need to do to get uh, the power you need for a car under the bonnet at the price that customers can afford with the reliability we've come to expect. The Apollo 13 disaster, for instance, mm-hmm. was initiated by the oxygen cylinder for the fuel cell exploding. Yeah. And um, so, uh, and then Mercedes' website has got a picture of their NECAR-1 uh, hydrogen van, which they say is the world's first fuel cell vehicle. I think it's, strictly speaking, the world's first road-legal fuel cell vehicle. Mm-hmm. It's 1994. And in that photograph, the doors are open, and in the back of the van, you can see a whole chemical plant, really. Yeah. It looks like a whole refinery. It's, it's not a consumer product. <laughs> and, and again, getting that under the bonnet with all the, 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 the requirements of the auto industry requires a lot of work. And by and large, the industry has not been making that investment. So this is why it's taking a lot longer to bring hydrogen cars to market. What a fantastic answer for a start. Yeah, I mean, do, do you know, we've been, you know, we have talked uh, extensively about electric cars and battery electric cars and how, you know, yes, we don't believe people that actually do a little bit of digging under the surface don't believe that they are the final answer because, of course, they're not. 
Um, but you're absolutely right. The story that everybody is fed is that this is the final answer because, of course, you're right. Why would they say, well, actually, we're just doing this until we kind of figure out the next thing, really? So that's br- that's yeah. great to contextualise where they fit, I would say, in the market right now. Um, what I'm really interested in, though, is you're, you mentioned that you first started looking at these in 99 were people looking at you like you were some nutty professor? Because, you know, it must have been quite revolutionary at that, at that period. It, uh, it, was, it was being talked about in the, in the industry. I mean, in the early 2000s, people like GM were making big pronouncements about um, volume production in 2010. Yes. So yeah. it wasn't completely off the wall. Um, but we were taking a different view of how to build the car as well. And, and I would argue that the biggest change we really need to see in, uh, in the automotive world, if we're going to have sustainable transport, is actually not a technical one at all. It's a change in business model. Mm-hmm. And so we were, we were, I, I was um, working on the business model almost as much as the technology and uh, a business model that really turns sustainability from a cost into a source of competitive advantage. And until it's more profitable than unsustainable cars, we're going to be, uh, have, we're going to find the regulators fighting tooth and nail against the auto industry yeah. because it actually reduces profits. Yes. Um, now, so that is why I think it's so much so important. Profit is a much uh, better way of achieving an outcome mm. than regulating regulation when the outcome is actually negative for the profit motive. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember hearing a. I think it was another podcast. There was a conversation about the reason the climate crisis isn't being solved, or the or the the, the larger scale carbon emissions, and it's because there's no financial incentive for big corporations to do so. And if there were, then the carbon emissions would be reversed almost immediately. Absolutely. Because of course, at that point, once board members and shareholders get a profit from doing the right thing, of course they're going to do it. But up yeah. until they do get incentivized to do so, why would they? It's, it's never, ever, ever going to happen. So one of the things I want to explore, and again, I think there'll be a lot of people listening who uh, perhaps won't know the answer to this question either. So I'm happy to hold up my hands and say, I don't know. So I'm hoping you'll be able to explain it. And that is the kind of in a nutshell explanation of how a hydrogen car works and let's say let's go back to that example of having the ability to go to a Beaconsfield services take a hydrogen pump nozzle off of the uh, off of the pump plug it into the car fill the car with hydrogen how does that then work and translate from hydrogen to propelling the car right well there's a, a, a simple answer to this and then a slightly more complex one um, the simple answer is just how the, the, the hydrogen car works and the second part of that is how we are employing it mm-hmm. because we're not just plugging a fuel cell in to replace a petrol engine in a conventional car um, a hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicle is still an electric vehicle Yeah, it just doesn't have any batteries in fact a lot of the Fuel cell cars do have a supplementary battery, quite a substantial one. We don't, um, but you don't inherently need a battery at all. And the energy to to, to travel, instead of being stored in in batteries, is stored in the hydrogen. So you still have drive an electric motor, but you create electricity on demand when it's required, and you do that with a fuel cell. So the range is governed by the size of the tank, just like a petrol tank. Yep. And the power is governed by the size of the fuel cell. 
The fuel cell processes the hydrogen, creates electricity. It's got no moving parts. And the simplest way to explain it is that it's the reverse of electrolysis. We're all familiar with the school experiment of having a beaker of water. You put in the water and you put in electricity. Mm -hmm. And out bubbles hydrogen and oxygen. You're putting the electricity in to break the water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen, break that, um, that bond. And out comes hydrogen and, uh, and oxygen. When they combine, they normally go bang mm -hmm. and give off that energy as heat. In the fuel cell, it is the same process. It can even be a reversible device. You put the hydrogen and oxygen back in, and you do the same reaction but in reverse. So out comes electricity and water. Mm -hmm. Now, it's much, much harder to make it go that way, <laughs> the electrolysis <laughs> way. And, and so that is really what has been uh, uh, holding uh, the industry back. Uh, you simply cannot get the same sort of grunt out of the same volume that mm -hmm. you can with a petrol engine. Yeah. And so this is where our approach is slightly different because we don't need as much grunt from the fuel cell. But we'll come on to that, no doubt, later. Fantastic. Again, fantastic explanation. That's brilliant. It's great for my very simple little mind. <laughs> a fantastic job. So talk to me then about where we're up to so far with... River Simple and the cars that we've seen. So just to paint the picture for the listener, we've already had a very quick look around Miles and I whilst we were setting up in our little studio space here with microphones and cameras and things. Uh, Miles and I had a very quick look around. Ben, who took us on a little tour, uh, did a great job at showing us the car. And they look fantastic in, in the sense of an actual car that we recognise as a car. Uh, four wheels, two seats, loads of carbon fibre, doors that open upwards like a supercar. It's all very exciting. How long has it taken now for you and the company to get to this point with working prototypes, working cars, what's that journey been like from the infancy of River Simple starting to the point that we're actually now about to jump into a car, turn a key and hit an accelerator pedal as we would do if we were driving a diesel car? Well, I set the, the company up in 2001 and since then we've developed five generations of car and uh, the first three were pure R&D vehicles. And um, then the first car we designed to use on the public road was in 2016. Uh, that was the alpha version of the, the Raza. Um, in 2019, we developed the beta car, the beta version of the Raza, um, which are the cars you see out there. Mm -hmm. And they look pretty much the same externally, apart from the nose and all the cooling system and air inlets and so on. Um, they look very similar externally, but under the skin, they're very different. So uh, completely new chassis, uh, front and rear. The, the um, driver's compartment is actually the same. Um, but new chassis, front and rear, new suspension, new fuel cell, new electric motors, new brakes. We went to drum brakes, in fact, in the beta car. From uh, The earlier car had disc brakes. And um, we've uh, been running those cars and developing them since 2019. We've just started building uh, a bigger run of them. We've got four more in build at the moment, and we are piloting them in Monmouthshire, uh, where we've got a, a refueling station in Abergavenny. On, a, on what I might add are some excellent roads around here. Yes, <laughs> John and I both uh, <laughs> arrived here this morning and went, hmm, good driving roads. <laughs> <laughs> so a good, a good test platform for your car. Yes, and, and they're great fun to drive. I mean, we're from a, a motorsport background, so mm. we weren't going to build a boring car. And, uh, and though it's only 10 kilowatts or 13 horsepower, 
Um, it's got uh, it accelerates zero to sixty in nine and a half seconds, um, and that's constant torque. So mm-hmm. I think uh, um, the acceleration from forty to sixty is really very impressive indeed. Um, and it, the closest road car that I've ever driven to that is uh, is an old Lotus Elan from the nineteen sixties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that sort of delicate, nimble, very good chassis and suspension. Um, and uh, extremely dynamic, agile. Absolutely. So fun to throw around. We don't. We've intentionally reserved any sort of judgment on the car, or anything like that, before <laughs> we drive it, of course. But here's what we know about it already. So please, please feel free to add to this. So all carbon fiber monocoque chassis, as we've yes. seen it, and actually going in to see the cars, we've seen them in various stages of build. So we've seen them quite stripped back. And you're absolutely right in saying. It has a very motorsport feel about the car, <laughs> and you can see where that heritage from you, from you in particular comes from. Um, no batteries to speak of. Super capacitors take the place of that. Tell us a little bit about how that actually works, just very briefly, before we drive it. Okay, so the fuel cell does provide all the power for cruising. Um, but it's, it can only provide enough power for constant cruise. Uh, the, the, all the transient power required for acceleration, um, the additional power comes from a bank of supercapacitors. We have no batteries at all. Mm-hmm. And those supercapacitors are charged under braking by the electric motors. It's, it's worth pointing out, I think, that stepping back a stage to a conventional powertrain that we've had for the last 100 plus years, the engine is sized for that maximum acceleration. Yes. Even in something like a Fiesta, you're only using about 20% of that peak power on That's the motorway, right, cruising at 75 miles an hour. Um, and you're only accelerating for about 10% of the life of the car. So it means that the engine is 80% redundant yep. for 90% of its life. And uh, the same is true of the transmission system. And then the structure is designed to hang on to these heavy bits in accidents. So that's much heavier than it needs to be. And it's a spiralling, compounding problem. In our case, the fuel cell is sized only for that constant cruise at 60 miles an hour. And the, the, the acceleration we retain by having this bank of supercapacitors. Now, that's all fine and dandy on paper, as long as you can rely on those supercaps yeah. when you come out of the fourth roundabout in Milton Keynes. Yes. And, and, so, and the only way you can do that is by having very, very efficient regen. Yeah. And that is why we have four electric motors, because we want to brake at all four wheels. You need braking at all four wheels. And we don't want to use any friction at all. So we do have a friction braking circuit, but when we press the brake pedal on the, um, in the car, it closes valves in all the hydraulic circuits mm-hmm. so that the brakes don't work. So the only braking is electrical. And that's true up to about 0.3 G, which is quite a hefty braking event. Yeah. And uh, beyond that, the friction brakes supplement it. And actually also below about uh, 8 miles an hour. Um, and... <clears throat> That's uh, we refer to as a phase braking system. It means that regen braking is super efficient. In something like a Prius, the most you'll ever recover when you brake the car uh, is about 10% of the kinetic energy of the car. Yeah. We can recover 55% of the kinetic wow. energy of the car okay. electrically into the supercaps. And that means that we can have a much smaller fuel cell because we can size it just for that um, that uh, uh, maximum constant speed. It means we've got very good acceleration 
up to the desired constant speed and it can cruise there, yeah. but it can't go any faster. Right. So it doesn't creep up to its top speed as you would expect in the conventional car. It goes straight to the top speed and stays there. Wow. That's a, it, well, like you say, it's quite a revolutionary way of actually considering the powertrain, isn't it? Because I've never thought about that before, truth be told, that you're absolutely right. There is so much redundant mm-hmm. um, power there, power and torque all of the time. Like you say, this huge engine, which is trying to carry around what is a very heavy car. So as a byproduct of the car being small and light, um, as I read here, 655 kilos, which is extremely light. You know, even a standard road car now is knocking on two tons, if not more. Um, But here's here's a really interesting fact that I was reading on your website, that at 60 miles an hour, it's using about 10 kilowatts of power. Which is the equivalent to about three kettles. Yes, it's, oh. it's using a little bit less than 10 kilowatts at 60 miles an hour. Got a little bit in reserve. And uh, yes, uh, a domestic kettle is three kilowatts, so nine kilowatts is three kettles. Incredible. How cool is that? <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> and so it's a bit disingenuous to say that the car's only 10 kilowatts, only 13 horsepower, in that we do have about 70 kilowatts when you're accelerating. Yeah. Yes. But you only have it for 10 seconds. I feel like now would be a perfect time to cut to a little break, to perhaps go and have a closer look at these cars and a little drive, and then perhaps we'll come back and compare notes. No doubt we'll have even more questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because this is a a, a genuinely, yeah, really, really fascinating day for us, and I'm sure for our listeners and for our viewers, I should have pointed out at the beginning, really, we are filming this episode as well, so there will be sections of this conversation that you'll be able to see as well as just hear, and of course, crucially, you'll be able to see the cars whilst we're having a little look around them and a little drive. So John, we've got to cut now, and he's got to go into two hours of makeup. <laughs> um, his, his rider is a bowl of blue smarties only um, and actually I did see him hit somebody when there was a green one in there <laughs> we call it a fracar in the industry <laughs> fighting talk isn't allowed <laughs> perfect right bear with us dear listener short break we'll be right back Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Driven Chat Podcast. Now then. So Miles and I have walked into a room across the corridor from the little meeting room that we were in having our conversation. And, well, we've been greeted by one, two, three, four, five, six hydrogen-powered cars, all in various states of uh, array, with some with complete body parts. There's one 
conveniently located to an open shutter door. That's where I guess that's the one we're driving out, Miles. I believe so. It's in prime position. Uh, and then we've got a few other models here, um, some that seem very well put together. Others, including one, which is currently just behind uh, Luke, our camera operator, which is a the full carbon tub, which kind of resembles a McLaren-esque. I was say, it's got a bit of, it's got a bit of a McLaren about it, isn't it? Yeah. And just, again, just for context, the people watching the video will see this, but we're not in some, you know, super... Like you know, like you know, like a McLaren, clean, high tech sort of area. This is very humble beginnings, is what I would describe it as. But what what's amazing is that the cars that have come out of what is essentially a workshop in Wales look like they've rolled out of a proper you know OEM uh, build facility. Yep. which I think is quite a remarkable feat, really. Absolutely. Uh, perfect timing. Here comes Hugo. Hugo, what can you tell us about the room that we're in now and the cars that we're surrounded by? Well, these are um, beta cars at, uh, in various stages of assembly. That's uh, the next one that's being assembled. Their chassis has got the wiring loom in and not much else. And I will show you, actually, if we go to the back of this one, I can show you really the guts of the car. Um, there's a fuel cell on the bench. Uh-huh. And there it is in the car, in the in the back of that bay, you can see a hydrogen tank. Yep. And uh, the filler flap there. So that carries, that's a 74 litre tank. It carries just under two kilos of hydrogen. And uh, that'll give us a range of over 200 miles if you drive gently, wow. rather more than that. I'm going to describe in the meantime what the, the actual power plant looks like. So the hydrogen tank, it resembles, if you've ever seen an old water tank, you remember like when we were kids in our houses, we'd have the, the water tank immersion heaters in the house, yeah. which are like these pressurised units for hot water. <laughs> That's what it looks like on a much, much smaller scale. I was going to say it looked like my, my dad used to have a discovery with a six CD changer in the back. It looks a bit like Oh, that, well, the so. super capacitor. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, I get... Um, I get music amplifier vibes from that it's a it's a very uh cube-like box with massive pipes going into it from that tank and that is of course where the magic happens where that transition from hydrogen to electricity takes place but it's actually all quite small isn't it that super capacity unit is what 35 centimeters long 30 centimeters tall not very big at all and then that that fuel cell talking about the actual hydrogen tank itself is 60 centimetres long by probably 40 centimetres high. Kind of like what you get from like your barbecue gas cylinder type thing. Exactly that, yeah. Well, what, what's, what's impressive is that, <laughs> as you were saying, like that, that van that you were looking at in uh, early 2000 or something, you know, it, all of that technology took up what was essentially the whole rear load space. And now here it is in this car taking up next to no space. And that fuel cell is, is, as I say, it's only 10 kilowatts. It's quite large for a 10 kilowatt fuel cell these days. Uh, it's a standard production item made for forklifts for Walmart warehouses. Ah. Um, in fact, the only mature market for fuel cell vehicles really today is in materials handling. So here is an electric motor. These are the motors that are in the, all the wheels. Uh, that's actually an empty one. It's not quite as light as, as that complete. Um, <clears throat> But that sits on the upright, which is here. Mm-hmm. The upright, and, uh, and this is a drum brake. Uh, it's all our own design. It's, it's um, a very large diameter, but it's only 20 millimetres wide, the, the brake, and that is the drum. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not wow. like a conventional brake drum, as you've come to know it. Yeah. And that sits around, the, uh, around those shoes. It also bolts onto the diameter of this electric motor. So that sits there. 
So the brake drum is integrated with the electric motor. The upright sits inside there. And we've got a, a wheel, which is only a three and a half inch rim. It's got a 115 tire, and it's a three and a half inch rim. Inside that three and a half inch profile sits the wheel spokes, the electric motor, the brakes, and the suspension pickups. And so really what this exercise is about is not a, a radically different electric motor. It's simply a packaging exercise to get everything into that volume so you can get the optimal suspension geometry with the, with the pickups where you want them to give the correct steering geometry and so on. And just to, for the audio benefit, just to describe the kind of shape, size and dimensions of these, we're looking at something in circumference of a, a large dinner plate. That's the kind of size we're talking here. If you're familiar with drum brakes, you'll know the format. Two brake shoes that push outwards. That's what then essentially touches the drum to slow you down. And then within all of that, you can see the motors. So looking at it, it's quite a it's quite an intrinsic design, isn't it? Where the uh, a sequence of, of wires and packs and things are all thrown together. But the actual thickness of that dinner plate, if you were to stack, I don't know, six dinner plates on top of each other, you're probably talking about that sort of dimension in total and that is what is essentially propelling you down the road yeah. and braking and, th and that, that you mentioned that uh, that wheel profile they look like space saver tires they're, they're really thin aren't they they are the tires that were uh, made by michelin for the front axle of the vw xl1 oh right uh, yes. <laughs> got it got it and it's lightweight because i mean i've got arms like <laughs> um pipe cleaners so and i'm picking that up with just just the one uh, and having used, I used to work for a, a luxury OEM, uh, as people most people know by now. And each wheel and tire assembly used to weigh about twenty five kilos. Yeah. Um, so in my apprenticeship years, that's basically what I did was throwing wheels and tires. <laughs> so I know all too well that that, by comparison, I wish I'd come and work here during my apprenticeship. <laughs> my back would thank you. <laughs> so I feel like we. Uh, we need to put this all into practice and have a go in one of these cars. I can see one conveniently located next to an open shutter door there. Here you go. I'm guessing this is going to be this is going to be our mule. Indeed. And uh, this car is is uh, I don't know if you recognise the colour being a car person. Oh, 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 hang on. I am a bit of a paint geek. So um, can I go with? Can I have one? Oh, hang on. No. Hmm. Uh, I'll I'll take one clue of. Is it a particular uh, manufacturer that uses this colour? No, it's actually from a race team. Ah, oh, right. Ooh. <laughs> a race team? It's a Curia Cos. Ah. Who ran the D-type Jaguars at the mall. Of and course. The, in 1957, the last of the three wins by a D-type was in the Curia Cos D-type in that colour, which I restored 30 years ago this year. Um, and we finished it at four in the morning on the Friday of the first day of the first Festival of Speed at Goodwood. No way. And we chucked it in the transporter down to Goodwood. Its first run after that rebuild was up the hill at Goodwood. Incredible. <laughs> That's so cool. I wouldn't have got that colour right. Now that you said it, now that you said it, I see it perfectly, but I was immediately thinking about newer Le Mans cars and I was way off. But yeah, amazing. So yes, if you know the Curie Cost shade of blue, um, that's what we're looking at right now. You can see the uh, you can see the motorsports sort of bleeding through everything that happens here. Yes, <laughs> subtly. Yes, <laughs> subtly, which we like. Well, the chassis, all the composites were designed by Jim Router, who started his career at, under Colin Chapman, and uh, on things like the um, 
the DeLorean, and the suspension detailing and motor design were done by Jeff Aldridge, who was at Team Lotus under Colin, and design was one of the two designers of the Lotus 77, I think. Grand wow. car. Fantastic. So Colin is near unto God in these in this company. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as he is for, for most uh, most of us, to be honest. But yeah, uh, and and you know this this is great because it positions motorsport where we like it to be, which seems to be a, a useful a useful <laughs> use of people's time. It's not just people spanking around cars for no good reason. <laughs> it actually so many good technologies come out of people racing cars. And long may that continue. Absolutely, and we're almost we're almost flip reversing what we were talking about in our our first part in the little uh, meeting room we were in there, where we were saying you know with the the evolution of technology in motorsport making its way to the road. Okay, admittedly we have now seen uh, Toyota, for example, at the Festival of Speed, they were powering a, a Yaris up the hill with um, none other than Rowan Atkinson behind the wheel. That was a hydrogen powered car. But other than that, there aren't many other hydrogen examples of racing cars that we're seeing frequently on the road. Here we are standing beside a exclusively hydrogen-powered car with motorsport-inspired derivatives, which essentially may be paving the way for hydrogen motorsports in the future. This is going the complete other way around. I think that's really exciting. Should we drive it? Uh, should we shoot it right? Let's stop flapping our lips and let, <laughs> let, let's go and drive this thing. Let's do it. And in the words of a hypnotist, we're back in the room. Um, well, so we've just returned from a little jaunt around the, uh, the, the, the mean streets of Paris. We uh, have. And um, I, I think I'm right in saying that was your, also your first time in a hydrogen car. Yeah, it was. It was, well, uh, it was first time, first time driving a hydrogen car for the both of us. And I think, should we say we were both pleasantly surprised? Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's um, promising. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, bear in mind that the, the owner and founder is in the room. So he's <laughs> is that what you told us to say, Hugo? <laughs> I'm joking. No, it's all it's all it's all genuine. Actually, uh, we've just been for it was only a short drive, wasn't it, John? But uh, enough to get a good feel for um, what it delivers uh, and how simple you've made all those systems that are seemingly quite complicated you wouldn't have any idea that all that was going on in the background as a driver, which is exactly where you want to be. Indeed. So simple is in our name for good reason. Yes. Yeah. We believe very strongly in simplicity, but not a crude and basic simplicity. We mean sophisticated and elegant simplicity. And actually, I think uh, there's an awful lot now with our increasingly complex lives. I think there's ever more appetite from people for something that does what they want and with them with in the simplest most intuitive way and doesn't crowd them out with all sorts of other complex choices mm. i love this guy can you start writing copy for us <laughs> really, good. really good stuff john i'm going to turn the attention towards you just briefly okay tell me what you thought I'm glad you asked that question, Miles, because I've written some notes on my phone. You're such a journalist. Which is yeah, a very journalistic thing. Immediately get out the card. Nobody talked to me. I need to write things down. I need to make a list, uh, which I've done. Because, yeah, I wanted to, for me, I, I, I get a lot out of a first impressions review of anything that I drive or a motorcycle that I ride. For me, that first initial 10, 15 minutes can often tell you everything you need to know about 
how you're going to feel about a car. And then sometimes, obviously, if you then got a car for a week or a month, you get to learn more about the, the day-to-day stuff. But it's the first impressions that matter because, of course, that's the point. If you're going for a test drive in a car, those are the moments you're going to pick up on. So the things that jumped out to me, and all of it I wasn't really expecting, things like the noise. And again, I, I think I got into the car as it was my first ever hydrogen experience. I got into the car, popped it into gear, went to roll forward, accelerator on, and the car moves forward, and there's suddenly a noise. There is a there is a presence, and it's all happening behind. And that's something, obviously, you don't get with EV. Okay, you get some synthetic noise every so often, but of course we don't need that in the hydrogen car because there is a noise happening. But I remember thinking at the time, well, this is a noise that's happening, but I've never heard this noise before, <laughs> uh, which made things quite interesting. And and the, the variance of noise, the more you accelerate, the more happens, but it's not a progressive aggressive explosion internal combustion noise it's uh, yeah. it, it's more things generating and then Ben brilliantly explained to me at the point that the hydrogen fuel cell was essentially feeding hydrogen through to the supercapacitor which then triggers the sound of a cooling fan and 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 he says you know if it was a very cold day at this point you'd actually see the water vapor coming out of the vents behind so that as a as a an immersive experience is a completely new feeling for me which is really exciting because annoyingly I don't get to experience new immersive feelings in cars anymore but I have today and that was really quite special beyond the sounds there's also you know the feel of the car the steering now we had a chat before we went out Hugo and I had a quick chat about some of the engineers that have made the car what it is and a lot of them you say come from lotus background and at one point i was i felt like i was in a bit of a lotus environment firstly because of the size of the car you're quite close to your passenger but not in a intrusive way then the steering feel you mentioned there's no power steering because of course the car's weight is so low and I immediately thought of early S1 Lotus Elise mm-hmm. um, and even with the, the the kind of the shape of the dashboard you're there in this little racy environment light steering despite no power steering everything's happening behind you it's it has got a real a genuine lotusy feel you felt the same as well didn't you 100 percent, yeah we that's the first as soon as we got out of the car i went what do you think it's jar and he went hmm it feels like a feels like a, a lotus or a lightweight sports car i said that's literally exactly what i said and then of course ben and as you attested to earlier said well it has a bit of lotus dna in it as it happens and a bit of motorsport dna so that makes perfect sense but you're absolutely right i i felt like it had the charm of a of a, a, a lightweight british sports car which is which is never a bad thing um just the way i was saying as well because we're so used to having cars or so used to driving cars that are just heavy these days obviously mm-hmm. um by modern by by modern standards so to get in a car that weighs 650 kilos it just doesn't happen anymore really so it was quite refreshing, really, to strip things back to such a simple uh, format, really. I found it quite a, 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 I don't want to use the word too much, but quite a charming thing to drive, really. Mm. And uh, I, I don't know, it feels like it could work. And I, what the other thing I said was, even if, this, even if the car did nothing else than proved as a concept or a study that that form of powertrain can work, then I think it's already done an incredible job. Yeah. 
That's great. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. There was a quite a nice moment where Ben and I, as we were driving along, this crossover period that we're now entering where we're going to start seeing an increase of uh, battery cars, an increase of hybrid cars, petrol cars phasing out. And there has to be this something for everyone stage because, of course, battery EVs for everyone doesn't quite work. And at one point we were passed by five vans in a row. One was a delivery van, one was more of a truck, one was a pickup truck with their broken down car on the back. There I was thinking, you know, in no situation would an electric motor in any of those vans work in all situations because mm-hmm. the, the truck that's got the car on the back that doesn't work yes you can scale up batteries and yes you can scale up motors but at that point you've got a hell of a lot of weight when it comes to battery power yeah. to then put that into very heavy motors as well at which point you're way over that curve of efficiency because it just doesn't quite work however i could imagine that the hydrogen model could be scaled up and that curve of that point of no return where mm-hmm. suddenly we are putting too much weight into a product to give it the battery power doesn't become a problem because, of course, the hydrogen, as we discussed in the first part, can be modelled in a way that just produces the necessary power and nothing more. Absolutely, yes. I think you've brought up an interesting point about weight mm. and um, and where hydrogen makes sense and where it doesn't make sense. And th- there is a mantra going around that uh, we need hydrogen for HGVs because they're yeah. large. Yeah. And the government has reached that conclusion. I think it's the right conclusion. I think we do need hydrogen for HTVs, but it's got absolutely—it's completely the wrong reason. It's got absolutely nothing to do with size or weight. And uh, and there's two examples I can give to illustrate that. One is that you can easily make a high, uh, a battery electric HTV if you're happy to do 50 miles a day, mm. but that's not what HTVs do. <clears throat> and it's the range and the uptime. Yeah, they want to sweat the asset. They can't afford to spend hours charging. And it's the range and the uptime that, uh, that, that mean we need hydrogen for, for, long, for long-range heavy vehicles. The, the other end of the scale is um, the only mature market for hydrogen fuel cells, actually, is in materials handling, forklifts and pallet carriers and warehouses. Yeah. And uh, now uh, over 30% of food in American warehouses is moved by hydrogen. Uh-huh. And... A pallet carrier, one man standing with a joystick with one pallet, is not a big device. Mm-hmm. So again, clearly it's not a matter of size or weight. It's a matter of uptime, utilisation. And they get more productivity out of a hydrogen pallet carrier than they can out of a battery one. And these same criteria of, of range, uptime, utilisation apply across the board from the pallet carrier right the way up to the HGV and for everything in between. So there are, there are cars for which batteries absolutely make sense. But driving from London to Edinburgh, I don't believe is one of them. No. Agreed. Completely agreed. Yeah. Completely agreed. To con- to, you're absolutely right. And that actually, when you brought that fact up about the, uh, you know, the pallet carriers and food warehouses and all that kind of thing, it's just not an area that we even considered, really, mm. because it's not, it's not at the forefront of that. It's not something we see every day, is it? No. But as you say, transport is all the way from that end of the scale to your HGVs that are doing thousands of miles a week. Mm. It's brilliant. It's, it's fascinating, actually. Yeah. And uh, uh, we often hear uh, another of these mantras that goes around. The 80-20 rule, 80% of journeys less than 20 miles. Mm. And uh, as if that really means that we can solve the problem with battery vehicles. And and it's probably true 80% of journeys less than 20 miles. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with using batteries for those mm. journeys. But the corollary of that 80-20 rule that nobody ever points out, I've never heard anybody point it out, 
is that 80% of miles are driven in the other 20% of journeys. Mm-hmm. And that's 80% of the problem. And that's where we need the hydrogen. It is fascinating. Having experienced it now, it's almost filling parts of a puzzle that I didn't even know needed solving. Mm. It's making me think about all of the EVs that I've been driving. In fact, we joked, didn't we, Hugo and I, we joked before we went out for a little drive, just whilst we were setting up cameras in the car. And I was talking about the frustration that I frequently get when a press office, let's take Kia for an example, comes forward with their brand new family car, which boasts boot space and plug-in points for your, your phones in the car and loads of room for Isofix kids' seats in the back. But then their headline is, it'll go from 0 to 60 miles an hour in 4.2 <laughs> seconds and top out 160 miles an hour. And I always think, why? Why? <laughs> why does it need to do that? And again, it all comes down to this. There seems to be this desire to feed the consumer with impressive statistics of speed and power when the reality is all we're doing really is going back to that same issue that we've got with combustion engines, which is that we've got an engine that has the capacity to rev to 8,000 RPM, and in sixth gear, it'll do 120 miles an hour. But the vast majority of that time, it's never going anywhere near that. Mm -hmm. It's not revving that high, and it's not going that fast. So therefore, it's a completely unnecessary feat. But with the hydrogen, again, that is all just counterbalance. It it, it, it is, and and my, my own opinion is that the reason why they bang on about that as a headline figure and as like a, a, a you know a pull on the on the audience is because that's all they can talk about because actually they're quite uninspiring to drive yep. generally speaking yep. they all drive if you if you put a blindfold on and drove i would say 80 percent, 90 percent of the ev cars that are out there you could say i'm in anything here mm. um but the thing that's... that separates them out is well actually this one get this one can snap your neck at you know, three seconds to 60 or something like that. Actually, that's quite unpleasant <laughs> as a passenger, <laughs> for sure. Is, yeah. Isn't it? You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Um, certainly for the people that aren't driving, the passengers start to feel quite sick. Um, and as you, as you rightly said, John and, and Hugo, that's not where we spend most of our time in mm. the car. We spend yeah. most of our time driving at a constant speed. Absolutely, yeah. And you, you end up with a lot of redundant... Uh, performance capability but also a lot of redundant mass yeah um which you're carrying around because your uh, all your powertrain sizing is driven ultimately in a conventional car petrol or diesel or in a battery car or quite frankly in what i'd call a conventional hydrogen car from Mm. toyota Uh, the the power of the powertrain um, is governed by the acceleration that you want. Yeah. And if you want better acceleration, you end up with a higher top speed, whether you like it or not. Yeah. They're dependent variables. And uh, the, the, the beauty of, of our architecture is that they're independent. We can choose the acceleration we want, and we can choose the maximum constant speed that we want. Mm. And uh, you can vary them quite independently. So you can increase the acceleration without increasing the top speed, or increase the top speed without increasing the acceleration. The third variable is energy efficiency. And if you increase the acceleration or the top speed, the, the, the fuel efficiency goes down and the cost of the vehicle goes up. Yeah. And it means we can tailor the powertrain's capability to precisely what you want. Everything you need and nothing you don't. It was an old Porsche slogan from yeah. the 90s, yeah. which is no longer true, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, I think in our powertrains, we really can can achieve that. And it means you, you, reduce, you reduce cost, you reduce fuel consumption, you reduce mass, you reduce all the embedded carbon in manufacturing the car because a lighter car has, just requires less energy to build. Absolutely. Um, the, the mass issue, I think, is one of the, the big issues we are uh, reluctantly going to have to face. Mm. Um, there are very few people really talking about it, but I've seen a couple of articles over the last year really calling for a total change in direction in, mm. in vehicles. And the, the problems that excess mass introduces are manifold. Mm. And um, so it's not just the, the energy efficiency or the critical materials or the embedded carbon in manufacturing of the car, its road safety, its air quality. We now know that non-exhaust emissions are much more damaging to human health than the exhaust emissions. Absolutely. And, uh, and they're pro rata to mass. Yeah. So if you have a car four times the mass, you have four times the particulates. That's a- absolutely right. And that's one of the talking points I came up with with Ben as we were driving back. There seems to be this huge focus on exhaust te- or tailpipe emissions and and the the dangers of it and oh we're breathing this gas in it's terrible but the conversation isn't being had about tire dust brake dust brake dust as yeah. a as a as an example these EVs for both brakes and tires are absolutely eating through these consumables for the simple reason that they are so damn heavy They're so heavy yeah and going through corners you know we've all I've experienced this in a number of EVs that I've been driving especially the in inverted commas performance EVs mm. which boast these absolutely ludicrous not to 60 times which is great and it is fun and it gives you a bit of a giggle but you throw that car into a corner and you realize goodness me they're heavy and then mm. you start speaking to people that have actually gone out and bought them and they said well I've actually done 12,000 miles and I need a completely new set of tires because the car absolutely eats them up yeah and they're big and expensive tires too absolutely they, are. they yeah. absolutely are yeah yeah uh, and and you know further back in the in the food chain as it were as well you know we what the thing that's always neglected is obviously the use of critical metals that goes into all the batteries and stuff like that and you know that is in terms of a carbon footprint that just that stomps on anything that the car could possibly achieve in its lifetime surely absolutely i mean we've got we we, i'm sure we will learn to recycle battery materials Mm. we can't at the moment but I see no technical reason why we don't, and I hope we will. Um, however, we've only got about 2% or something of the world's cars running on batteries. Yeah. So even if we recycle all of those, the other 98%, where they're going to be replaced with battery vehicles, require virgin materials. Mm. And if we focus on net zero to the exclusion of everything else, it'll be a completely pyrrhic victory because we won't have a planet left. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the, the uh, an example is, um, I mean, it's not just... Uh, lithium, it's nickel and it's cobalt, it's actually copper, yeah. mm. um, it's neodymium, it's dysprosium, it's yttrium, it's iridium. I mean, the, the list is endless. And a renewable world is much more dependent on critical materials than a fossil-based world. In the fossil-based world, we can pretty much muddle through steel and aluminium. Yeah. But, but in the renewable world, there's all these other things. And it's not just cars that need them. Surely. It's wind turbines, it's yeah. solar PV. Yeah. And we've got to find wiser ways of allocating them. So true, uh, and I think it's the it's the car, isn't it? It's the it's the car that always gets the uh, gets the hard mark, as it were. Yeah, you know. But like you say, there are countless other things that use these materials. One of the things I want to pick up on, and we're currently the room we're sat in 
which I'm guessing is one of your meeting rooms, there are some sketches on the wall which are grabbing my interest because, of course, we've had this conversation, we've kind of alluded to it up to now, it's the adaptability of a platform. So the platform that we are, we've driven today is a little two-seater platform with the cell in the back, uh, the supercapacitor there, but essentially four wheels on the outside, one wheel on the inside, two seats and a shell, and it's all there. Now that power plant, I'm fairly sure, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, can go elsewhere. It can Absolutely. be taken out, plugged into something else. So the quick and easy option, or the quick and easy solution for a broader variance of products, and the product being the car or the vehicle, uh, is demonstrated by some of these sketches. So I'm looking at a estate van idea, I'm looking at a fastback idea, I'm looking at a small van and a family car. From a design and concept point of view, how much is different in comparison to what we've been driving today, other than, of course, the obvious shape? Well, there's, um, there's very little difference in terms of the powertrain other than sizing of electric motors, mm -hmm. supercapacitors, and, uh, and fuel cell. And even that's not hugely different. So we've modelled a four-door family car, and it would need a fuel cell of 18 to 10 to 20 kilowatts mm -hmm. um, versus the 10 kilowatt system we're using at the moment. So it's not a huge step up. And that would give um, a, a car that does 75 miles an hour uh, on a motorway uh, all day it would have a 400 mile range uh, it would um, uh, it would do everything that a Toyota Mirai does quite frankly mm. uh, it would accelerate faster to 75 than a Mirai it just wouldn't go any faster that's the one difference yeah. um, and uh, it would be about twice as efficient um, it's um, so that's that's only double what we're running at the moment um, and we can, we're, we're not looking at going up to uh, heavy commercial vehicles. Mm. Um, we are firmly focused on cars. It's the one area we're good at and where we feel our powertrain architecture has a real advantage. And, and it has a real advantage where in, in a duty cycle where your maximum constant power is a very small proportion of your peak power. Yeah. And that... In that instance, we can really, uh, we've really got a huge competitive advantage. We can have a very small fuel cell with a highly functional car that's cheap, accessible, and um, and does everything that you want. Uh, as you go up to uh, heavier vehicles, uh, you tend to have a, a smaller ratio between the power to accelerate, uh, the power to cruise, and and the power to accelerate. And there's less an advantage that we've got to offer. So we're sticking to cars. And uh, the, the reason we're doing a, a, a two-seat local car initially is because uh, the, the million-dollar question that comes up all the time is, is infrastructure for hydrogen, mm -hmm. which we believe is we are absolutely confident. We've got partners we're working with. And there is no shortage of appetite to invest in hydrogen uh, refueling. Uh, all the forecourts in the UK, the private forecourts, are uh, terrified of the implication to battery charging because they cannot afford to invest in the not just the chargers but the substations that's to right, provide yeah, yeah. megawatts. Yeah, and that's absolutely. the bit that really makes it, uh, means that there isn't a business case for that investment yeah. without public subsidy. Yeah. Never mind all the other public subsidy required upstream of that. Absolutely. So extra power generated. And... Um, Whereas hydrogen, they can put in a hydrogen pump and uh, at a relatively modest price, what they need is not a subsidy, they need demand. Yeah, mm -hmm. And right. if you build a motorway-capable car, 
you, I mean, I think that the factory Toyota are saying we've done this wonderful car and Hyundai, and it is brilliant engineering. It really is. Mm. I mean, I feel they're solving problems entirely for their own creation mm. because they're trying to squeeze it into a car that's and an architecture and manufacturing model designed for petrol engines. But um, but it is a brilliant bit of engineering. But they're effectively saying to governments, we've done this work. Now we need 300 filling stations. And Paul had us at Toyota, we can't afford that. So governments, mm. you've got to pay. And that, to my mind, is not a strategy. It's just passing the buck. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so we're focused very much on the local vehicle market. There's over 3 million cars in the UK that operate in a 25-mile radius. Mm. It's not a segment that the industry recognises, but it's, it's quite a substantial segment. And, um, and that's, uh, that means that if we put 100 cars into, for instance, the area around Oxford and a forecourt puts a hydrogen pump on, on, on the forecourt on the ring road, uh, they've got 100 captive customers from day one. So the, yeah. there's a business case for them. And then, as it scales and is copied in different places, you can grow the skeleton of a nationwide network without ever taking a nationwide gamble. Then we would introduce longer-range um, cars designed for intercity use on motorways and so yeah. on. Makes so much sense. It really does. And, and, and you're right. I'm so glad you picked up on the, the, the I was going to say crisis. I'm going to go with it. Crisis of installing plug-in PowerPoints for fast chargers in existing fuel stations. I'm sure anybody that spent any time driving up and down the M1 or most large motorway networks have been to a service station and they've seen the charging points covered with a big waterproof green bag that says, we're currently working with the National Grid to try and provide enough power to this service station to power this charge point. And you think, my goodness me, if I was on my holidays or if I was heading up 100-mile journey, 200-mile journey in my EV and I had 50 miles left and I got to the service station there and I'm thinking of Leicester on the M1, which is one very close to our office, where this both sides, northbound and southbound, they have these huge EV chargers there completely null and void, out of use, because they don't have enough power to get there. And this is, again, something that a lot of people are forgetting, is yes, we can install the actual charge points, no problem at all, but then getting that power from the national grid to those machines involves digging up road networks, involves re-channeling where energy is coming from. It is a monstrously expensive thing. So tell me about the difference then with hydrogen, because in my head I'm thinking even different to petrol or diesel, where we have to store that fuel underground, which would involve having to dig into the ground and have these big concrete tanks in order to keep it safe and out of the way. In my head, as a know-nothing amateur, I'm thinking a hydrogen tank could essentially be a freestanding unit next to an already existing building. Is that right? It could, and that's, in fact, what's happening at the moment. In fact, the regulations... Uh, prevent you putting it underground. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think in the in the long run it will go underground. It'll replace the petrol tanks. Okay. Um, it's it's not allowed underground for safety reasons, but the the, the perverse thing is it's actually safer than a petrol tank underground. Mm. And the reason for that is that a petrol tank storing a lot of liquid, uh, you you have to. And this applies to the tank in the car too. Um, if you've got a whole lot of petrol in a tank underground, you've got to let air in to let mm. the petrol out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a combustible mix of oxygen and fuel. Yeah. That's really, that's why it's dangerous. Yeah. But hydrogen is stored under pressure in a, in a pressurised container. So you can let the hydrogen out without letting any air in. So if you had a hydrogen tank underground, it would never have any oxygen. So it simply would not be able to explode. 
Uh, it's an inherently safer solution. I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. I, that was a question I, I know we will get following this podcast, but let's try and answer it now. <laughs> the, 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 the question of safety, you know, essentially carrying around a highly pressurised tank in the back mm. of your car. Mm. What, are, what, what are the genuine risks of that for the consumer? It's a lot safer than the petrol tank, and the, the authorities here in the US, everywhere, recognise that. I mean, there's a PR issue, for sure. Mm. Yeah. We get asked less about it nowadays than we used to, but I think that's probably because Toyota and Hyundai are on the market with hydrogen cars, so if they're doing it, it's safe. Yeah. But it, it, it's safer for three key reasons. One is that the, 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 the hydrogen tank is an awful lot stronger than the petrol tank. Mm -hmm. And to be honest... If that hydrogen tank ever got ruptured in an accident, you'd have other problems on your hands yeah. than the hydrogen. Um, it is such a strong device. Um, secondly, if a petrol tank gets ruptured, all the fuel pools underneath the car and incinerates the car above, whereas hydrogen goes upstairs very rapidly. Mm -hmm. So even if it ignites, it tends not to do any damage to the surrounding vehicle. Yeah. Ford have got a, a, a video which is available on YouTube showing... Um, a petrol and a hydrogen car, identical cars otherwise, being ignited intentionally. Mm. After 90 seconds, the flames have gone out, the car on the left, the petrol car is a charred wreck. Mm -hmm. The car on the right, you wouldn't know anything's happened. It wow. had a jet wow. of flame going upstairs. And the third is probably the most important point, and I've just covered it effectively, uh, for the underground Bowser, it's true in the, in the car as well. Yeah. Nowhere in the car, because you've got a pressurised tank, you don't let any air into the tank when you let the fuel out. So nowhere in the car do you ever have a combustible mix of oxygen and, and fuel. Mm -hmm. And in fact, <clears throat> the solenoid valve in the tank closes when the tank pressure drops to about 10 bar, 10 atmospheres. Uh -huh. And that is because if it's 10 bar, no air is ever going to get in from outside yeah. at a tenth of the pressure. Yes, yeah, so it keeps the, the, the tank pure 100% um, uh, or 99.99% hydrogen. That's fascinating. I, I, think, I, think it's, I think you're absolutely right. It's a PR issue because actually if, uh, if people took the time to actually understand how the technology works or we as uh, you as the, um, you know, the technology developers, if you will, once that message is out there, and it's put in layman's terms, where people go, oh, yeah, actually, that's quite all right. No, yeah. oh, I'm not carrying a bomb in inverted commas mm. around the back of the car, you know, which is what, that, that's what people think, yes. sadly. Yeah. Yes. I think it's uh, the, the big issue that's always been present with any area of interest, of passion, of love, hobbies, change is a really scary thing. And the, yeah, the minute that, announcements were made that petrol and diesel cars will be coming to an end. The world went up in arms and people were throwing all sorts of things at the wall, getting very upset about it because it's a change, it's different. It's not what they're used to, it's not what they know, it's not what they understand. They can't immediately comprehend how it all works and therefore it's stressful and what's stressful is then upsetting. But I think we've had this fantastic conversation today which even if 2% of our audience listening have listened to this and gone, ah, right. I now understand how it works, and secondly, that it's actually not, not that dangerous at all. Mm. Conversations like this are so important because I think the more people can understand it and familiarise themselves with the technology, familiarise themselves with the safety of it all, the quicker we'll get to this solution, which ultimately is so much better than battery-powered cars. Mm. And people just need to realise that. People need to 
understand it. And I think you know, we covered it in the first section of our conversation. We're almost walking blindly into this new world of regulation where we're being told by the powers that be that this is what we should be doing because it's better for the world because this car doesn't produce any carbon dioxide out of his out of its exhaust pipe but that's it with no mention of where the metal comes from how it's refined the brokerage systems it goes through the deposits that come off the car from other areas like brakes and tires mm. none of that's being mentioned none of that's being discussed it's just uh, uh, but but nothing comes out the back so it's fine <laughs> it's good it's better yes i mean the 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 safe Safety, I don't want to um, uh, give the wrong impression because we spend an awful lot of time working on the safety aspects. Mm. Um, However, uh, I would say that we have to put much more effort into the electrical safety than the hydrogen safety. And it is perverse, really, that we don't... Electricity is invisible and we just don't have the same conscious awareness of the dangers of electricity. Mm. Yeah. So um, the, the hydrogen bit is is actually uh, easier to deal with. And of course it's flammable. Yeah. Um, mm. uh, any chemical fuel worth its salt yeah. burns, goes That's bang. Right. Yeah. Uh, otherwise it's not a very good fuel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It comes with the territory. But it's, it is all, as you say, it's new, it's change. And so there are a lot of taboos that we've learned to live with, with mm. petrol, you don't smoke when you're filling up your car. Yeah. Um, those sort of things. Um, and they're, they're just different taboos. And, um, and actually probably fewer of them. Mm. But we're, we are um, at a pioneering stage where we're having to think this through from first principles. Uh, in a way that you don't have to do when you're making just yet another petrol car. Absolutely. But the charging one is, uh, we did an interesting calculation, actually. You're talking about the the enormous infrastructural costs um, in motorway services. If you take a sort of fairly modest services today with 20 pumps Mm -hmm. and you wanted to replace it with pure battery charging for the same number of cars, generously it takes six times as long to charge a car to yeah. fill it up with petrol. That's yeah. Correct, yeah. So you need 120 chargers. <laughs> They're 120 kilowatts each. Yeah. So you'd need a substation providing 14.4 megawatts, mm, yeah. which doesn't mean much to most people, or, or myself even. But 14.4 megawatts is equivalent to the average, con- the con- average consumption of 32,000 homes in the UK. Wow. And that's just for one motorway services. So the idea that we, we should scale this up to, to support 35 million cars in the UK is, is really delusional. Now, I don't deny that technically it could be done, mm-hmm. but it's 90% cheaper to do it with hydrogen. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely. The, yeah, I, I'm so glad that those, uh, those misconceptions are being addressed in yep. this conversation Completely because right. it, dri- it drives me around the bend. I know it does you, John, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, that this is uh, for for again selfishly it's been a very 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 interesting conversation what i'm keen to know and for the audience to know as well is where the journey goes from here just briefly because yeah. as i understand it you're not ever going to sell any cars they're going to be on a subscription model is that right absolutely we uh, this has been part of the uh, dna of the company from the word go and it's not a lease it um it uh, differs in a couple of ways, and it fundamentally changes the vehicle we build. Leasing is a way to make it more accessible to get a car when you can't really afford it. Um, but it doesn't change the vehicle design. It just keeps the, the vehicles moving out the factory gates if you're selling vehicles. Yep. In our case, the two differences are, uh, well, the, the customer typically will take a contract for three years. And that is similar to a lease or a PCP. Uh, the difference is that they pay not just a fixed 
monthly rate for having the use of the car, they also pay a mileage rate. And that covers everything. It includes all their motoring costs. So it includes not just the maintenance, but insurance and fuel. When you fill up, you don't pay, the bill comes to us. And the second difference is that at the end of the contract, the car comes back to us. We don't sell it into the second-hand trade. We provide a second, a third, a fourth-hand customer. And that means that our interest, instead of obsolescence and high running costs, I mean, the average markup is about 1,500% on spare parts, mm. um, our interest instead are longevity and low running costs. It brings the opposed interests of manufacturers and consumers into a complete alignment. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it, it also uh, means that we can amortise the vehicle over a longer period. We design it for a much longer life. So the car's got no moving parts except for the wheels. The wheel bearing is the only high-speed metal-to-metal contact. Mm. So there's no lubricants, no wear, no oil changes. All the structural materials are inert, so there's no corrosion. And the components that do degrade, like the fuel cell, are designed to be service items. So there's no component that when it fails, it economically takes the car off the road. We model over a 20-year life. The average car life is 14 and a half years in the UK. And we believe that after about seven or eight years, people aren't buying a car for the latest sexy model. They're just buying it for functionality and reliability. Yep. And, and in our case, if, you take a, if you're a fourth-hand user, a 10-year-old car, your costs of motoring will still be entirely predictable. Mm -hmm. You still pay a fixed rate and a mileage rate. And you don't bear the risk of a component failure economically taking the car off the road. We do. But it's designed for that model. And because of that, we can harness the revenue streams for 20 years from that car rather than just three. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, we get much more revenue from the, the, the car. And we are designing it to minimise the operating costs because we're paying them. Um, it, that includes the fuel, mm -hmm. so we, it's worth our while investing in efficiency because we're paying for the fuel for the life of the car. We designed it to minimise all the other operating costs like uh, um, the spare parts and so on. Uh, we designed it to maximise the length of the revenue stream rather than minimise it. And we designed for maximum recovery of value at end of life we, because we know it's going to be ours at end of life. And that's not just raw materials but components that can be refurbished and used again. And the price to the customer is not driven by the build cost to the car. It's driven by the lifetime cost. And that end of life value recovery lower operating costs, longer revenue stream, can all offset a higher build cost. So we can come to market at the same price to the customer as a, a conventional bottom-of-the-range Mini, for instance, long before it's as cheap for us to build the car as it is for BMW to build a Mini. <laughs> and that gets over these, these, the price premium of getting into zero-emission vehicles. And I think we're facing a real uh, crisis of accept accessibility um, for uh, affordable zero emission cars. And I think that's not going to become politically acceptable. I think we saw that in Huxbridge yeah. uh, just last week. Um, but it's, it's also a global issue in that the cost of battery cars is largely in the battery. Yeah. And that's 80% of the cost of the batteries in the raw materials. Mm -hmm. When des demand for raw materials goes up, the price goes up, not course, down. Absolutely. So we're going to get to a, a stage where I believe that most, if we go purely the battery route, 90% of the world's car users will be restricted to a car with a range of under 150 miles. Mm. And I simply don't think that's politically acceptable. Yeah. And so I think 
economics is ultimately the reason why hydrogen has, is, has got to win, because hydrogen will be able to offer not only the flexibility, um, spontaneity, fill up in three minutes and 300 yeah. miles in your tank, but also the accessibility um, and affordability of, of a conventional car uh, with the range that you, you, we've come to expect. And so um, uh, I think that's really where, where the, the power is of, of, of the hydrogen solution in the, in the medium term. Brilliantly said. As, as is everything else that we've covered in this, in this episode. I hope there are, as I said before, even if it's a small portion of our listenership that have heard what's been said here and realise that's where I've heard it for the first time. Because I think we are being, as a, as a general market of people, we are almost being missold this solution to a problem that perhaps doesn't need solving whilst there is this alternative route that we all got excited about initially and then somehow it all went away because it wasn't the easy solution. It wasn't the one that was easy to market and easy to PR. But I really hope that, let's say, five or ten years from now, we can look back on this conversation, which, in case you're interested, dear listener, is being recorded in uh, August 2023, by the time the episode goes out. Um, I'm, I'm really keen to, to see how far we've gone in, in five or ten years from now and how we look back on this conversation and go, well, of course we knew this was what needed to happen. Here we were talking about it then, but at the time of us saying it, it didn't feel like it was going to happen. But here we are. I think one of the things you pointed out, Miles, was that if you're blindfolded, 80% of the cars feel the same. Yeah. And um, I'm from a car background. I actually like driving. Yeah. I like cars. And I think they're a hu- they've been a huge blessing for the last 100 years in many respects. They're creating lots of problems. But I do think it'd be highly regrettable if we lose the joy of motoring and the yeah. joy that cars can bring to people. And, uh, okay. and I think, I think this, the, 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 there is the potential with hydrogen to, um, to preserve that freedom and that uh, uh, enjoyment in driving whilst being completely sustainable. It won't happen overnight, but we'll get there. Here, here. Absolutely fantastic. Well, we'll be banging on the front door when the next one comes out because we want to have a go in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I would right. encourage anyone, any listeners as well, obviously, to give you guys, uh, keep an eye on what you guys are up to, yeah. uh, which is River Simple. Um, and I, if I'm right in saying that you will be offering out cars again for people to drive, uh, so they come along and they pay for it, basically, and they have the car. Well, we are, we're running trials, beta, beta trials yeah. at the moment in, in Monmouthshire. Yeah. Um, so if you live in Monmouthshire, it's a runner, but we can't mm-hmm. really provide cars elsewhere. We've put a refueling station in Abergavenny. Yeah. Uh, there's a company at the moment who are just uh, uh, buying that refueler. We hope that's the only refueler we've ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, but they want to buy it and run it for commercial reasons. But we're gradually building our fleet up to 20 of the Razas and running them uh, with customers. They take the car for a month at a time and we get really quality feedback on the qualitative aspects of what they like about the car, what they don't like. We can test the technology. What we can't test is people parting with their own money. Mm. So they're paying a commercial rate to have these, the use of these cars, and, uh, and that is all informing the development of the production car because the Raza was never briefed to be an everyday usable car. It was designed, quite frankly, to show off the technology and develop, as a platform for developing it. Um, so the car we're developing now is approximately three inches higher and a three inch higher seat so it's easier for easy to get in and out of particularly for older people 
It's got better rear three-quarter vision, which isn't great. It's a bit sports carish from that point of view. And, and a bigger boot. And uh, those are the sort of key, key differences. But uh, uh, we're hoping that will be um, uh, start of production in three years' time. Great. Fantastic. Well, as Miles says, watch this space. Uh, we'll include, within the show notes of this episode, uh, scroll down, you'll find all of the information you need to find, uh, web links, social media feeds, that sort of thing, to take you through to River Simple so you can see exactly what's happening. If you do happen to live in Abergavenny and want to be involved in this trial, then this is your call to action. Um, get in contact uh, with River Simple because, of course, there could be a great opportunity for you there. Hugo, thank you. It's been... I, I said at the very beginning of this conversation, I, I'm excited because I feel like I'm going to learn something today, and I feel like I have in many ways. That's great. It's been a great pleasure, John. Miles, thank you very much indeed for coming. It's been a, a pleasure to show you around. Yeah. And I'm glad you enjoyed the car. Really did. As yeah. it should be. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, preserving the joy of driving. For now, dear listener, we will have to say farewell. We, uh, as ever, will invite you to uh, subscribe. If you're not already subscribed, perhaps this is your first episode with us. If it is, then hopefully you have enjoyed this. There are nearing 200 of these episodes now, believe it or not, that you can catch up on with all sorts of interesting people. So do have a look back at the back catalogue. Make sure you also check out what we do online, our website, driven.site. There you will see the entire back catalogue of podcasts there in a nice convenient list for you. Uh, but you'll also see all of our written articles for road tests that we conducted as well as previous videos and previous podcasts and photo shoots and some general news stories if there's something in the press that we think you want to know about then we'll write about it and you'll see it there on the website so go and have a look at that it is also worth mentioning we do this only once in a while we have been filming today's episode can't guarantee that the whole episode will be up as a video however there will be a video for you to go and see on our YouTube channel and that will feature Miles and I driving the car, a little walk around with the car, just showing some of the details and then of course the conversations whilst we were in the car uh, with Ben talking about some of the features and explaining some of the noises that we hear and getting our reactions, our very real reactions to driving these cars for the first time. That's Miles and I. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for listening. As ever, it's an absolute joy bringing you these episodes. Uh, if you are enjoying them, don't forget, you can do us a huge solid by leaving us a lovely review wherever you're listening to this podcast, as that genuinely does help. And for now, I'll say thank you again and speak to you next week. Thank you, everyone. The Driven Chat Podcast. Powered by Paramex Digital. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Oh, wow. You've made it to the end. The 
very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.